It's an unpopular opinion, but I believe more people should be buying a business instead of starting from scratch. Hi, I'm Jason Andrew, chartered accountant, business owner, and financial voyeurist, and this is Stark Naked Numbers. It's the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation to help you become a better entrepreneur and investor and ultimately build your bank account. Uh, today's episode, uh, we're joined by Pete Seligman. Pete is a search investor. He helps aspiring business owners find good businesses and gives them a great future through acquisition, growth, and a successful exit. Pete's experience is quite unique as he's one of the rare folks who has personally acquired, operated, and sold a number of Australian SMBs. Uh, So today, he's going to tell us how he does it and what he looks for in great businesses. So, you know, you can go out and find your little business uh, to create a bit of personal wealth for you. Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. It's it's uh, great to be here, and always love chatting to you because I know that it's it's going to be an interesting conversation. So let's let's see where it takes us. But yeah, happy to be here. Fantastic. Um, so people will jump straight in. So search funds. It's a pretty relatively new and emerging trend within Australia, at least. Can you start by explaining exactly like what is a search fund, and and again, I guess how you got your you got involved in this journey? Sure. So I'll start with the second first. Um, you know, my, my background. I'll I'll do relatively quickly. People can stalk me on LinkedIn if they need all the detail. But uh, I mean, I, I qualified as an engineer, um, and I've got a finance degree. I spent a bunch of time as a design engineer. That's in civil engineering, so I dig holes. So I don't write code. Um, and then I moved from there into investment banking when Macquarie Bank was in, investing in a lot of infrastructure, and so they're looking for engineering expertise in that process. Um, but also, whilst I was there, got exposed to all sorts of things in the investment banking world, um, both here in Sydney and and in London and in various other locations globally. Uh, and then uh, I guess the third part of my normal career, if you put it that way, was was working at Stockholm Property Group, uh, and that's where I got my general management experience and working with larger teams in larger organisations. But the, the way that I then came to um, entrepreneurship through acquisition or ETA was in about 2012, I decided that I really needed just a different challenge. Um, I, I could see the future of the career ahead of me. And it, whilst it was interesting, it, it wasn't kind of exciting or ambiguous enough for me. I wanted a bit more of a, a, a challenge and a bit less certainty, strangely. Um, and so um, I decided without any real um, – there wasn't any kind of roadmap or anyone else that I'd seen doing anything similar that, that, that got me down this path, but me and a good mate of mine decided that we should buy a small business and, and I should drop in and run it. And so that's what we did in 2013. Um, and that was SRO technology, which we still own today. And, uh, then over the next few years, did it a few more times, um, have, uh, exited or sold down a couple of them. And then in 2019, I kind of got to the point where, I made myself redundant again, which was the plan each time I dropped in was to drop in, then grow, and then kind of either promote or, or recruit a new leader. And I was trying to work out what to do next. And I, there was lots of options um, that I could have done, um, but I was looking for something that had a bit of flexibility. So I didn't want to be completely in a detailed executive role. Um, but equally, I didn't want to be completely hands-off. I just didn't want to be a passive investor. And and I came across the search model. And in particular, for me at that time, I came across the role of the search investor, which 
which really resonated with me because in the model, um, which I'll get to in a second, that the search investor actually does get quite involved with the searcher and helps them through their process and is a kind of coach mentor type um, participant in the process as they get along there. So um, that really resonated with me and I've spent the last few years um, investing in searches, um, uh, helping them along the way, investing in some acquisitions and, and also just doing what I can to build the market here in Australia. So first question, what, what is a, what is a search fund? Um, so there are lots of people that have had a crack at this. Um, I can give you a link, um, that you can put in the show notes to an article I wrote last year that kind of distills it a bit. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that people can read online, but very, very simply put, uh, a search fund is a vehicle that an acquisition entrepreneur or someone that wants to, um, own and operate a business can use that vehicle to raise a small amount of capital to support a search phase where they go out looking for a business um, and they can draw a small salary and they can pay for due diligence and other things from that small amount of capital. Um, and then when they find a business to buy, they can get, go back to that same investor group and, and raise the additional capital for the acquisition. Baked into the model is a certain amount of equity carry that, that the searcher gets um, as the real kicker um, for their participation in the model. Um, you know, the salary that they draw either during search or during the operating phase is usually and almost by design materially less than what they could get with their experience and capability in a normal market. And the purpose of that is it creates an opportunity cost that then is the entrepreneurial activity that they're doing, right? They're trying to create this exit value in kind of five to 10 years time. And that creates the alignment with the investors as well. So there's, there's an equity kicker baked into that. I, I won't go into the detail un unless you want to, but the, the equity kicker then, um, kind of bakes in that alignment between searcher and investor. Um, so that's, that's a, a search fund, but, but in, in very simple terms, it's about how do you create business owners? Um, and it's how do you do that in, in a model that's been well proven over many decades, uh, in other markets and is relatively new in Australia. Yeah, gotcha. So I guess these are searches, is that the term used by the, yep. the person looking for actively looking for a business? So they'll raise a bit of capital to fund, I guess, the search of hunting down a business. Um, they'll then find the business, hopefully that, that fits some criteria, which we can talk about in a second. Um, they then raise additional capital from the existing investor base to then fund an equity component. Is there a debt component to these acquisitions as well? Yeah, typically, typically there will be a debt component. And the reason for that is that the businesses that are the target of search fund acquisitions are established businesses and typically cash flow positive established businesses that have capacity to take on debt and there are lenders that have the appetite to lend to those businesses so yeah that usually you'll find it'll be you know like a 50 50 like a 50 percent leverage type um kind of margin gotcha so so casting your mind back to your first acquisition sro technology like what was the decision path for you to decide to buy a business versus starting one because I think that naturally entrepreneurial types or even you know, people who have worked in larger organizations that you know, have, have this confidence that they have the skill set to, to operate a probably a larger business and they think that 
a lot of us want to get into to business ownership, which is exactly the path that I did. I, I wanted to own a business from a young age, but um, decide that, well, I've got this skill set in accounting. Um, I'm then now naturally, it makes sense for me to start an accounting firm, right? Because that's what I'm used to. That's the te- from my technical ability. That's what I know I can do. And now I can largely start that with zero capital because I've got no um, no fixed costs. I'm, I'm not doing that. So I'm curious to understand the decision by, between like, why would someone choose to buy a business versus build one or start one from from scratch, I guess? Well, I guess, you know, the fundamental thing you need to begin with in order to start one from scratch is a good idea. <laughs> and yeah. and, um, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm not an ideas man, uh, but, but, <laughs> but I'm not necessarily the ideas man. Um, no, I, I guess, um, you know, you, you need to have real conviction around a particular idea. Obviously, if you've got a capability or a skill set, um, in a particular area, like for example, accounting, or it might be, um, typically like a services type industry, um, bodes well for people wanting to start from scratch if they bring that skill set already. And, you know, I guess if I was thinking about myself in that regard, I could have started an engineering firm. I could have started a consultancy firm. I could have started, you know, that kind of thing. Like at the time, one of the other things we could have done is started a small PE firm. Like we could have raised capital at that point, gone and gone and bought a range of businesses, managing other people's money. So there, there are things that, that using either our existing capability or whatever, we could have just leveraged that to start something new. The only other thing that we could have done was we, we would have had to have had a great idea. I mean, what, what's, what's the new thing that you're going to bring to life? And, and I think, you know, a lot in life and frankly, a lot in business is around self-awareness, right? And, and I think I'm self-aware enough mm. to know that I'm not, I'm not really the widget guy. I mean, I, <laughs> I've, I've thought about lots of things that could be great widgets to bring to market. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time at the snow. I do a lot of skiing. I sit on chairlifts next to snowboarders a lot. And every time I sit on a chairlift next to a snowboarder and the back of their snowboard scratches my skis, I think about the design of a binding that could avoid that happening for a snowboarder. And I've even designed it, but uh, it's not the kind of thing I'm going to bring to life, right? So um, sure. ultimately it comes down to self-awareness. You know, you need to think about, and that's the great thing about ETA is that for those people that want to be a business owner, but they don't have either that kind of start from one uh, skill set that they can take to market in a services or whatever perspective, or they don't have this great idea about this new product or service that they can develop from scratch, there is another path. And that other path is is ETA. And I think that I recognized early enough that I'm the kind of person that is good at scaling things, but I'm not really a starter. Yeah. And I think the other thing to consider is probably the opportunity cost of, of the time it takes and the risk that you're taking to build a bit, to start something from scratch, right? So to, for a bit of context, like when, when, you know, I started uh, my business partner, I started SPO, you know, eight years ago. And, you know, the first three years, you know, we didn't pay ourselves anything. Mm. Like we, yep. we, you know, so we, and, you know, we were a different life stage then. Uh, you know, it was, had a fiance, but weren't married. I had a mortgage, but we had a, enough kind of personal runway to survive. You know, for, for two years, we kind of fine towards the end yep. of that, that second or third year period. But, um, you're taking a lot of risk, a financial risk. You're putting a lot of sweat, um, and inequity into the business, which I guess you eventually own and you don't have any, well, if you're lucky, you know, you don't have any debt and it is hopefully successful and, you know, later on. But I guess the opportunity cost of that 
that time, you know, you could have been earning two or three hundred thousand dollars as a full-time earner. Um, where I guess if you buy a business, you're going in as the CEO, as the operator, you're being paid a, a fair, a fair salary, probably still below mm. potentially what you could achieve outside in, in your specific niche or what you were doing in your previous life, but uh, enough to pay the bills per se and, and know that the equity kicker is, is laid down the track when you eventually get an exit for your, for your co-investors. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. I, I think though, you know, it depends. Every single business you buy is going to be a little bit different. And I do think that on the whole, um, you do still need to have, uh, well, it depends. In a traditional search fund environment, yes, that kind of ongoing remuneration is there, right? And that's, that's the basis on which that structure is formed because it means that there's at least enough to keep putting yeah. food on the table through that period, being the first three year period you're talking about. You know, for the experience that I had, um, you know, I actually haven't drawn a salary for, for 10 years now, but that is, I, I do think at the beginning of that period, you do need to be ready to have some runway in order to be able to do that. And, and even, even with the salary that a searcher might get during the search phase or even that they get onto during the operating phase, depending on their personal circumstance, they probably do need a little bit of buffer or runway to do that. And, you kind of want a bit of that. You do need, both as an investor and also as an operator, you do need it to be a little bit hungry in that period. I mean, that's a whole, yeah. it, the reason why it's got entrepreneurship in the name <laughs> is because it is an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? It, it, it is, yes. it is, you know, taking on risk in the hope of reward, which is effectively what entrepreneurship is. Um, and so there, there is an element of risk there that, that doesn't reside in, in a normal career path. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I, th- I think uh, now, now I think about my trajectory because I, I had no idea that this model existed, right? And I just buying a business wasn't really in my thought mm. process when I wanted to. Uh, become a business owner, I thought, yeah, I just have to start one from scratch or maybe own equity as an investor through you know, buying public stocks or mm. maybe if I was lucky enough, get access to private private deals. Um, but like the, the concept of buying business was completely foreign to me and this was eight years ago. But um, it is really fascinating to watch the trend um, and, and see uh, and work with actually other other searchers just to see what they're doing and, and and what they're looking at. So I'd like to talk about like what what is what's a perfect business like for a for a search fund uh, a search funder who's looking to acquire a business. What do these businesses look like? What's their revenue? What are they industry agnostic? Like yeah, what are the characteristics of a great search business? Yeah, sure. So so I think you know whenever answering questions like that about the model or about the approach. Quite a lot of those questions you can answer in the first place by looking back at the fundamentals of the way in which the model was structured in the first place. Really what a search fund is about is about how do you back an individual for them to then be successful and become a business owner. And so when you talk about what is the perfect business for a search fund to acquire or the kinds of businesses that search funds should buy, in some ways... the best type of business is the business that's going to be best for that individual to run, right? So, so there's a part of the equation, which is like for each individual searcher, you need to find that you'll create the most value if you find a really good fit for that individual. So rather than necessarily the characteristics itself. So searcher A, so I'm, I'm backing a whole range of searches at the moment. And I, I would not suggest that searcher A should buy the same business as Searcher B because they're two different individuals with different experience and appetite and methods and character and all that stuff, right? So that would be the first thing. Like, you know, you need to find a business that's going to be a good fit 
uh, for the searcher themselves. I mean, in terms of characteristics, you know, typically, uh, and I think most of these metrics are similar globally, but definitely from an Australian perspective, you know, earnings in the range of probably 1 million of earnings at the bottom end. You can go smaller than that, but but typically that's self-funded. Uh, and probably at the top, like there are some that'll go, you know, more than five or six million of earnings at the top end. Um, but usually they're kind of between one and four million of earnings. And, and the reason for that is that they're slightly too big for like a, a standard kind of easy succession plan, if that makes sense. Like they're, they're easy, they're smaller than that. It's relatively easy for the management team to swallow if there's succession issues. Bigger than four or five, you do start to run into kind of trade buyer or small private equity competition. And so the multiples start to kick up. And, and so it just becomes a different acquisition kind of framework. So, so in terms of earning size, it's usually between one and four, one and five. Um, that's usually then people like in terms of employees, it might have 10 or 15 employees. It could have 80 to 100 employees. It's usually those kind of teams. They're allies, obviously, that those kind of sizes. Terms of type of business, a lot of services businesses, a lot of industrial engineering kind of traditional businesses. In the US, where there's more volume and history, you'll see a lot of things like landscaping and plumbing and fire services and engineering services and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're also seeing more uh, managed service providers like IT managed service providers coming through the market. Um, again, kind of relatively people-based. Occasionally, there are SaaS businesses. There are good examples uh, in the Northern Hemisphere of, of SaaS businesses being bought through this model, but they're more mature SaaS rather than kind of high-growth scaling SaaS. So it can, can be a whole range of things. I mean, I, I, I'm... Well, that's one of the things I really enjoy about being an investor across a number of different searches is just the spectrum of things that come across my desk as a result, you know, the kinds of businesses that come out of nowhere that when you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, there would have had to have been a business that does that. But before that point, you're like, I never thought a business would exist to provide that product or service. But, of course, there is, right? So um, I always think of that scene in um, in Cocktail um, remember with Tom Cruise and they're talking about the flugel binder. I don't know if you know, but like the, the little bit of plastic on, on the end of your shoelace, right? Like someone invented that, someone yeah. built, like someone makes that and someone makes that for every shoe provider. Like, um, a, a little bit, it's like that, you know, the, the types of businesses that get bought, um, by searches are those businesses that you never really thought about, but you rely upon every day. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what I really love about this space. I think like I categorically, I like to call them boring businesses, mm. you know, boring in the sense that they've been around for decades. Um, they, they serve a somewhat of essential or critical piece of the economy. Um, and they're the most like unbeknownst kind of widget uh, here, or it's just some service that you just don't have exposure to, but obviously serves a, as a need and, 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 and yeah, serves a need in the market. Um, relative to like the sexy tech in the, you know, VC backed hot startups where, you know, these, these very smart founders are inventing mm. some sort of app or a digital product or even a physical product to disrupt an industry. Uh, this is like the anti disruption. It's like, no, I just want the, you know, if all things, if you don't screw up the business, don't fuck anything up. Yeah. Like this business should be another round, be around for another 20 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, I think the other similarity that you find with these businesses is the ownership structure. Like it's typically owned by people of retirement age. Like the the, the sellers are, yeah. are typically aged between 55 and 75. 
Um, potentially they've got some family in there that are either helping them run it or are currently running it or potentially that happens a little bit, but ultimately it's owned by someone that's ready to retire. They don't have a great succession plan in place. They've probably been running it for 15 to 20 years, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, so your point that you made earlier is that um, you're really backing the searchers in the individual as opposed to finding a great business and then trying to do the reverse work of finding an operator, yeah. right? So you're really starting with the individual. So what does that look like? How do you know what fit, what business would fit an individual? Is it based on their historical kind of their resume of like, hey, they've worked in a services business, so therefore they should buy a services business, or is it based on um, they're really interested in SaaS, so then therefore they should buy something they're interested in? Like, how how do you match a business with a with a searcher, and what criteria do you look at? So the first thing I do, and, and I even ask this direct question when I'm talking to searchers about things that hit their radar, is is I ask them whether or not they're excited about it. As you well know, right? Like you've run your own business for a long time. Like you need to enjoy doing what you're doing to turn up every day and you particularly need to enjoy <laughs> yeah. doing what you're doing when you've got to spend months going through bad cycles and dealing with the crap that that delivers you right so so yeah. i think there's there is an important point there's a certain amount of brain and there's a certain amount of gut that goes into that decision making process and so i think it's important to have a conversation with the searcher about you know, what's your gut telling you? Like picture yourself sitting in the driver's seat of that business and can you get excited about what you can do with it? Um, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, I do think that um, you need to – so one of the things that whether or not it's it's me buying a business or whether or not it's me helping someone else buy a business, um, there's kind of a process I typically go through and, and one of the one of the first sets of questions that I would ask if – if I saw a teaser or a one pager on a business would be the key, three key questions. One, one is, you know, is it generally in an industry that's not going backwards? Like it doesn't need to have massive tailwinds, but is it generally okay? You don't, you don't want to be like pushing shit uphill, right? So is it generally okay? Um, the second one is in that industry, does it have something that's, you know, not unique as in no competition, but a little bit different around how it provides services or the product that it's giving to that industry. And then the third question, which goes to the point we're talking about now, is what difference am I going to make or what difference is the searcher going to make? So so I yeah. think that's the other thing about finding the fit is it needs to be a little bit around, you know, you're going to buy this, but like where do the puzzle pieces fit together? So when you put the searcher in the mix, which part of the puzzle are they helping to fill? And and it could be as simple as, you know, there's a great services business. It's providing landscaping services to greater Western Sydney, right? And the searcher is fantastic at B2B uh, kind of business models and B2B customer interactions, right? And setting up um, systems and workflows around those, right? That's got nothing to do with landscaping. But if the growth opportunity for this business is to start setting up a recurring income stream to provide landscaping services to property owners in Greater Western Sydney that's all integrated in the back end with those property owners' management systems, great. Like that's a really interesting kind of way in which they can bring a new layer of kind of revenue and consistency to a landscaping business. And if they're really excited about how they can kind of, you know, renovate this traditional business and bring it to a new market, then you're ticking a whole bunch of boxes. So 
yeah, is the searcher excited and interested? Can they see themselves living and breathing this business? And secondly, what is it that they can bring and and what difference do they feel like they can make in that environment? All the other things is kind of threshold criteria, right? Do you think they can generally learn enough to understand the basics of how the business operates? Do you think that they have the ability to at least kind of get along with the people in the business in order to lead those teams? Like, you know, those are threshold, right? Like if if they're if one's from Mars and the other one's from Venus and the searcher is never going to get along with that group of people, then you're kind of creating a problem from the start. So some of that stuff is threshold, but, um, but yeah, that it's, it, it's definitely um, horses for courses as they say, but, but I think that there, it really is about that fit. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how many, how many businesses do you have you, what well, do you own slash have owned and currently have invested in? So when, when I was, let's, let's say when I was first kind of more directly investing in order to operate, um, that would have been five. And then since kind of, I guess, migrating to more of the investor non-exec director seat, um, yeah. I, I still have three of those five that I'm sitting on the board of and, and invested in. Um, and I've added two more. Um, and I'm backing, I think it's about eight searches or, or partnerships. Wow. Searches. Eight, eight others. Wow. Okay. So, so and, and a couple of those are hopefully, um, going to make some acquisitions. Um, a couple of which you know about. Uh, a couple of those will make some acquisitions in the next couple of months, which would be great. So, um, so yeah, I mean, somewhere between five and 10, I guess, in the last 10 years. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So out of those eight to 10 or five to 10 businesses, like what's the best business? that you've had an interest in and and why. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance? Looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team, empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes. But unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. Picture this, a team of chartered accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. It's a bit like asking me who my favorite child is. Um, <laughs> Everyone has a favorite, you know that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, they, they've all got differences really. Like I, I, I definitely – each each business has their own challenges and opportunities, right? Like and, and yeah. like, I'm doing my best to not avoid the question because I don't want to just avoid the question. <laughs> I, I really so like through my head is just spinning a whole bunch of attributes of things that I enjoy, right? So so in no particular yeah. order, I, I love businesses in which there are, and this this sounds like. Um, 
you know, this sounds like I'm making it up, right? But I really do enjoy businesses in which there are career paths where people in those businesses can actually develop themselves as people, right? And and so there are ex- excellent examples of businesses that I've been involved with in the last decade that have provided real journeys for um, for those people to to yeah. develop their own career and, and even kind of hit some of their own goals in that process. So, um, and some of those goals are, you know, for the the kids of the founders that we bought off their opportunity to extract themselves from the family business, which is all they've ever wanted to do, but they haven't been able to do because mum and dad haven't been able to, you know, like, and and, yeah. and us being a part of that journey that enables, that unlocks them to be able to do that, I think is an excellent thing. You know, p- providing an exit for for some of those founders has been has been great as well. Um, you know, with SRO technology, which has been through the biggest transformation in the time that we've owned it, you know, went from, from six employees when we first bought it and now we're approaching 90. Um, to watch specific individuals in that process go from, you know, starting as an individual technician and making their way up through supervisor and management ranks, um, is, is really nice because I'm, I'm sitting in a position where I can say to people when they come on board, you know, um, I'd really love to know what you're trying to achieve because, you know, we can be proactively involved in trying to help you achieve that, right? Like I, I, I remember um, uh, there's that book called The Alliance um, and it's a fantastic analogy of um, that relationship between employee and employer, which historically has always been like a master-servant type relationship, right? Um, yep. Whereas more and more these days it is an alliance, which is what which is what the book is founded on. But it talks about the fact that, you know, um, businesses or employers come together with employees from time to time in periods during which both of those parties should should grow and benefit from that relationship. And, and I've really seen that happen a lot in the businesses that we've been running and that's what I really enjoy. So in terms of like which has been my favourite, um, I, I have really enjoyed working with the challenges that each of the businesses um, has has put on us um, and and each of those challenges is slightly different. I don't think there's, you know, there's not a particular characteristic that I now look out for necessarily. It's not like I go, okay, so yeah. based on the, the 10 that I've been involved with, you know, I've now kind of got an idea of exactly what I need to look for when, when I go for my yeah. next one because sure. you kind of don't know what that might be. There Obviously, there are things like, that you need to look for in determining whether or not you should or shouldn't buy and if you are going to buy how much you should pay like obviously there's that but um yeah i, I think i think the other thing that i that's worth mentioning is is i think as an investor and particularly as a pretty active investor which is all by design you know i, I don't like being passive um yeah i do i have over the years learnt to get more and more or better and better at um, investing in and, and joining in those businesses where I can actually properly leverage my experience and capability. Um, if I step too far away from my experience and capability, um, things get a bit shakier. <laughs> so, so there is definitely something to be said for for investing and participating um, in in the realms in which you're comfortable. Gotcha. Yeah, it, I was actually. Yeah. 
to that question, I was actually expecting you to tell me, oh, the best businesses are the ones with the greatest IRR, right? Because I think that's how most, <laughs> as an investor, I think that's how I would think about, well, the best ones are, yeah. you know, uh, the best ones is this, this B2B SaaS company. It's recurring revenue, yeah. great gross margins, great EBITDA, negative working yeah. capital, produced a X amount. But it sounds like, you know, you really get the enjoyment of fulfillment from seeing the, the, the people on the operation side of a business as opposed to strictly the numbers. Well, uh, well, I think, I think the answer to that is the fact that um, I think if I get those bits right, the IRR and the returns should happen, right? Like, should like themselves, it, right? it's like, um, you know, I enjoy the process and, and all those other things will come out on the scoreboard if, if the process is yeah. working well. And so yeah. the thing, yeah, the thing I know and, and even now that I've been doing it for long enough that I can say from experience rather than from my guess. <laughs> I know from experience that that when those other things are working well, the numbers follow. Um, and yeah. and so yeah, I enjoy um, working with the team, solving problems, like you know, overcoming those challenges. I, I, the, the comment that I make is that you know, if you're going to climb Everest, you want to enjoy the climb, not just be hanging out for the view at the top. Um, yes, and, and I think that that's Great that's knowledge. really relevant for small businesses. Um, and I enjoyed the climb. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's fantastic. Good answer. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk about like in terms of pricing these small businesses. Right, we just spoke about um, you know the size, which are anywhere between one and five mil uh, EBIT or earnings. Um, uh, you know, typically services. Like, how how are you typically valuing these businesses at this end of the market? And um, I'm really curious about the earnings profile as well because you said earnings, but often earnings don't uh, don't mean the same thing as cash flow. Yeah. <laughs> and and so what you end up pricing a business can be very different to how much you actually have to raise in terms of capital because of you know capex, working capital, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was going to be facetious and just say three and a half times. Um, but <laughs> but it always ends up around yeah, that, exactly. it? it's it's between like, three and four. But it's like yeah. uh, it's like I used to have this joke with with Ian, my, my business partner in in Alpen, and we used to joke about the fact that every single business, regardless of what it was, always had a twenty three percent earnings margin for some reason. Yes, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've normalized it. There's twenty three percent earnings. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you, the thing about normalized earnings, you can make it with a right? It's like yeah, <laughs> every single time twenty three percent. No, so. So yeah, valuation is a really interesting debate, right? I think um, I think that the first point I'll make is that that typically at this part of the market, the data that the business already has that you will have access to when doing your due diligence and coming up with valuation will generally be pretty crap, right? So so you can you can do work on it, which is right in your wheelhouse, right? This is what you get asked to do all the time, right? What can you do with this data to try and extract any kind of insight that you possibly can, right? And and there are methods yeah. to do that, which is why people like you are very important in the process. Um, but, but typically, there's a limit to how far you can push that data, right? So, so the first thing I'll say is that, that you need to acknowledge how fat the pen is that you've been given to work with and so don't try and come up with a five decimal place answer when you've only got a zero decimal place pen to work with. Um, so, so then, you know, when it comes to value, um, there's a relatively small range of likely multiples, really, 
like in this part of the market, if you're talking less than two and a half times earnings, you're, you're at the very low end. And if you're talking more than four and a half times earnings, you, you better be pretty comfortable that it's a, a good solid business, right? So yeah, yeah I mean, that, that range I know is like, you know, getting close to, 100% variance, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but equally like, you know, it's not, you're not like trying to determine whether or not this is a four times business or a 10 times business or a 15 times business, right? Like the, the multiples, yeah. you'll be somewhere in that range. Um, so the earnings number, just as you said, is, is pretty important. And, and the normalizations that get put into that are also pretty important. Um, you know, like, if you get normalization wrong one way or the other, it can change your valuation by millions. Um, yeah. So, so I think getting a really good understanding of, of what you can reasonably define as maintainable earnings, um, is important. And if you don't know, I won't go into that detail. If you don't know what that is, then ask Jason and he'll tell you. Um, <laughs> so maybe a separate, episode, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think, I think just really, getting an understanding of where you think that is. But again, not to the fifth decimal place. It's like, you know, mm. are we like if our earnings range is is it a three million dollar earnings business or a three point five or a two point five? Like I don't care if it's three point oh one six like that, you know, your your margin for error is too big. So um yeah. so I think I think that maintainable earnings number is really important. I think looking at the history like was it three million every year for the last five years, or was it like going from half a million to three million in the last two years, or like that kind of tilt? None of those things either make a deal great or make a deal terrible. Um, but what they do is they influence the way in which you might then structure the deal. So, so I think a lot of a lot of the valuation point comes down to that saying, and you know, there's probably someone you could quote that actually said this, but I don't know who it would be. But basically, you know, um, uh, you tell me the price, I'll tell you the structure type comment, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you tell me price, I'll dictate terms, but you can't have, yeah, yeah, exactly, like exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think that that happens a lot. There are certain prices that are insurmountable, like for example, I remember we were looking at a business back in 2016, I think it was, and um, we went into the vendor. It wasn't a massive business. I mean, it probably had turnover of $5 million. So it was, it was going to be a bolt-on. And we went into the the owner and we said, oh, look, just before we get really get into the detail, have you got an idea of what kind of amount you'd want? And they said, well, um, we'd want you to pay us enough that if we put that amount into the bank, it would spit out the same amount that the business does each year. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, interest rates are around about 5%. So what, 20 times earnings? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're like, I don't think, I don't, anyway, that deal didn't go ahead. Um, so, so I think, um, so I think structure comes down to it a lot because, because more often than not, unless they're wildly out, Usually the vendor can say, I'm trying to achieve X in terms of my exit. Cause usually, as we said, they're probably going to be retiring. This is probably their last swing of the bat. Right. And, and they yeah, built this yeah. massive thing and this is it. Right. Um, 
So they probably have a number and they need this number because they've thought about what it looks like for the next 20 years of their life, right? Um, mm. so, so it's actually a little bit about valuation and probably a lot about structuring in order to show them what that looks like. And most of the deals that I'm have been in and am involved in right now, um, have a lot of structure wrapped around trying to get to that number that the vendor is after. And and if, yeah, if buyer makes- and seller are flexible enough, you can usually kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, you know, to be honest, I really, under- I think most people, and I made the same mistake, underestimate the importance of structuring versus price. Like, you know, I think if you get, even if the price is a bit more expensive, mm-hmm. if you structure it in the right way, you can almost like de-risk that price that you're paying. Mm-hmm. Because I think the risk with pay- overpaying is that, oh, you know, earnings might drop next year or my if it impacts my returns. But if you may put some, tie some earnouts or make that a deferred payment over several years into the future, it kind of risk adjusts um, that, that price that you're paying anyway. Um, and, and so, in terms of control, so you know, you're, you're essentially the operator or the searcher is becoming CEO or operating this business. And so, is it common or uncommon that you see, um, you know, the previous owner still retaining uh, some ownership interest in the business, or even if there's an earnout? Like, how is there any conflict that you've seen historically about the hey, this new I've been running this business for like this for for 20 years, and now this young whippersnappers pay me, you know, this amount of money, which is great, but. They're changing the way I'm doing things. And that's not how you do that. Like you're paying to, you know, have you, do you, do you get that a lot? Cause I imagine that it would be, especially the older owners yeah. who have no, nothing else. They are the expert yeah. of their business categorically. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you manage that conflict? Yeah. So, so definitely there is. I mean, it, it, it's, it, I mean, there's kind of two sides to that story. Like, so, so one side is, is we talked about maintainable learnings, right? So, so if you're doing a deal on the basis of maintainable learnings and you do your best to describe that method to the vendor who will understand it at various levels of, of understanding, um, then if, if they start showing concern around whether or not you'll be able to deliver that return again next year after you've bought it, it does is a bit of a red flag that you then say to them, well, like, is it maintainable if you need to be here in order to keep it spitting that out? Because if you yeah. do still need to be here, then maybe I'm not buying a business that is standalone. Um, and that, again, doesn't necessarily kill the deal, but it does mean that you need to rethink some of those things. Usually what happens is the vendor says, oh, no, 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 it's fine. And then <laughs> they, they, that you work, you work out some way through that. Um, yeah. In, on the other side of completion, so like post-completion, when you are working through an earnout, um, and you are kind of effectively dealing with a vendor who may be still involved in some way in in the business, um, you do need to manage that quite closely. And I think that that over the years, I think I've got better at understanding that post-completion relationship and working out how to navigate that. Um, and you know, like I'm involved in th- those kinds of relationships even as we speak, and um, ho- hopefully they're going well. Uh, shout out to any of those people that are <laughs> on the other side of those transactions, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, uh, the-, the point there is to be really clear, as clear as possible when you're heading into completion around what the measures in the earnout are going to look like and how you're both going to talk about on a regular basis. The impact to those things because there's no doubt that regardless of how consistent you think you're going to run the business post-completion, something will hit you even externally that'll mean that you yeah. need to respond to that external hit that'll have an impact on 
how the earnout might be calculated. And the trick is not to promise to the vendor that you won't change anything during the earnout period. The trick is to promise to the vendor that when you inevitably have to change things during the earnout period, you'll have a rational discussion around how you maintain the relativity of the earnout calculation, right? Like that, that's the most important thing because you will have to change like, like that uh, you can't not. Um, so, and th- it's that constant communication around, okay, if the vendor is seeing something different, raise it early. Okay. I've seen that you now you're having to buy from this person instead of that person. The margins changed. That wasn't something we anticipated. What's the impact on earnout? That kind of thing. But then in terms of process, like definitely. If, if you've had a vendor owning an operating business for a long time, there'll be things that they do currently or that are done in their business that they don't, they don't even know that they're wedded to until you try to change them. I remember with SRO technology, which is the first one we bought, um, like they had a, they had a, a book that used to sit in the office. And every time the purchase order came in, they would write the details of the purchase order into this book, right? And yeah. purchase order number, client, value, whatever, right? And then every time you'd ship purchase order out, you'd then like put a line through the purchase order. And it's like, you know, this is how we manage it. This is our work yeah. orders, right? Um, yeah. So, so very early on, I put that online, but duplicated, right? So they would still write it in the book and all that sort of stuff, but then it was online. And then maybe six months post-completion or something like that, still within the earnout period, I, I went to the vendor who was still kind of part-time in the business. So I said, oh, look, I've now got this online. Everyone can access it wherever they need to. It's all live and up to date. We've been running parallel with the book for a while. Um, so I think we're now ready to, to not need the book anymore. He said, if that book goes, I'm not returning to this business <laughs> and just stormed out. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I, I, I Maybe I was too naive and wasn't empathetic enough to to have that on my radar, but it just blew me away how wedded to like. But clearly, if I think about it now, like that was his touchstone. That was his his. You know, yeah. they've got all That's these, his way of knowing. They've got these like, barometers in the business that they use to work yeah. out whether or not things are going up or down. Obviously, the book was one for him, right? And so, you yeah. don't necessarily always know what it's going to be. Um, and so I think if, if post completion, you trip over one of those things, you, you can't be too hard on yourself because it's sometimes even the vendor doesn't know what they're wedded to and, until you try and pull it away from them. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the probably reason because I, I mean, there's always this question of like, why, why would an external operator run a business better than I can? Right. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I found this, I started this from scratch with my, my own hands. And I've hit a ceiling, but I don't necessarily want to be a hundred million dollar yeah. company. I'm comfortable being a twenty million dollar company. This young again, young guys come in, bought my business or bought most of it. Now they're operating it, and I start to observe like what changes they're making. And I think there's, I guess, an inherent, sometimes irrational, and I, I've seen this on both sides where the new person thinks that they can run it better. Mm than the previous owner. And so do you see that, like, do you back the searcher to run it better than the old operator or do you just, like, obviously they'll have to bring some unique, the edge to you, I guess, is the way that the new operator would run it, right? Like whether that's freshly thinking, uh, maybe they're a systems person where they can automate a bunch of stuff in the back, which which reduces, creates operational leverage. Maybe they're a BD person so they can create new geographic or market expansion. Like, I mean, the edge is you need to be, have 100% confidence that you can run it better than the previous guy, right? Yeah. That must be foundational to the thesis. Yeah, yeah. I, I would 
Yes, that would be the foundational thesis. But I would say that there's a process to get to that point. So the the analogy I use for that is like you're buying a vintage car, right? So you're buying an E-type Jag and when you're looking at it from the outside in and watching the old owner drive it, it looks awesome, right? So it's it's smashing it around the track and like, you know, sounds, it's, it's purring like it's, you know, it's running perfectly. But then you sit in it and the seat's uncomfortable and the clutch is sticky and third gear doesn't quite work. And every time you go around a corner to the right, it pulls to the left and like, but the old owner like knows those things about the vehicle so well that he doesn't even notice, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so in the first couple of laps of the track or the first couple of months or years of you running the business, not only do you need to learn how to drive the vehicle that he gave you, but you then need to start working through all those fixes. Okay. So now I need to change the clutch. Now I need to fix the gears. Now I need to replace the tires. Now I need, right. And so, so I do think that inherently over the long term, you need to have a view that you can, um, build a bigger and or more profitable business than you bought. So therefore you're creating value. But I think that in the short term, you need to recognize that the, the, that you running their business is not going to be good, as good as them running their business and you need to turn it into your business <laughs> before you can run yeah, it better. That makes, that makes perfect sense. And I guess like, you know, in traditional private equity, um, you know, everyone talks about this nine-day plan, right? It's like, hey, when a completion happens in nine days, we're going to transform yeah, the business. Yeah. We're going to instantly renovate it, like get that vintage car. We're going to replace everything at once, give the makeover um, and then, you know, look at make it look really attractive. And, you know, do is that – same playbook applicable to this style of operating or is it a much slower pace given the, I guess? So I, I, I think that anyone that says 90 days is, is lying anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so 90 days is like a, is, is like a, a framework that actually takes you three years, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I do think probably, I mean, my version, my very, very simple version of the search fund or small acquisitions playbook is um, fix the back office, grow sales, like, and that's basically it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And and in, in order to do that, the back office piece is people, systems, and process, and the sales piece is customer service, right? And, and like, that's the playbook. The, the glass ceilings that typically um, the owners hit will be probably as a result of an inability to delegate, like an inability to scale their team beyond them doing it for themselves. Um, so there are a few relatively, they're simple, but they're not easy <laughs> things that you need yeah. to do to, to fix. 90 days is such a short period of time. Like, I, I I like the idea of 90 days. I think 90 days is probably born from, um, you know, big corporates dropping, you know, GE taking a senior executive and moving them into a new division of their business in Africa and saying, what are you going to do for the next two years? And then doing a 90-day plan to develop a two-year exit or something. Yep. That works. Yep. For this, like – the same types of things that you might think about in that 90 days, I think is like an 18 month to three year type of process. Like a, if I was to map out like a five to eight year horizon on a business journey, which is typically the kind of time frame that most of these investments would be made, I'd say year one is like just learning which way's up and probably yeah. performance will drop. 
Year two is, okay, I now know how this business works so I can stabilize it. Year three is, oh, okay, now I've stabilized it, I can start growing. And then year four, five, six, seven, eight is actually then starting to to make some progress. And that progress won't be linear. It'll be all over the place. But <laughs> um, but but that that I think I think you don't really know it for a couple of years after you bought it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it's, and that's why it's really important to surround yourself with advisors like yourself because when you're in the trenches, you know, trying to stepping over the mess and working through things, it's really hard to see any progress. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, and I think that, I mean, a, a comment that I make quite on, quite regularly is that the effort is linear, but progress is exponential. And so yeah. you're chipping away again and again and again and again and seeing nothing, but it's like yeah. planting the seed and all the growth is underground and then eventually it suddenly kicks up and before you know it, everything's going great. But but in the meantime, you've really got to hold your nerve because um, you won't actually see the outcomes of your labor for, for a while. Yeah, yeah, cool. And, and so um, you've now – how many of your businesses have you personally operated as – CEO, GM, or you know, hands-on investor. Yes, three of them. I dropped in for various periods um, as a CEO, um, and then uh, now, as we speak, I I'm non-executive, so I, I'll sit on the board gotcha. of the businesses that I, of most of the businesses that I invest in, um, and and I'm pretty in in that role. Like, and even if I'm sitting around the board table with my co-directors. The role that I would typically take on that team would be the person that is engaging most frequently with the CEO to help them through those kind of operational things. Gotcha. Okay. So you've done, you've, you've kind of been the operator and then you've scaled yourself out, removed yourself as CEO, made yourself redundant from the opposite yeah. of the business and then, yeah, and then be able to replicate that to other businesses, which sound like not even related in the same industry potentially. Like what are you, so SROs, that, what's that? What is that? Services? Yeah, mining. Uh, yeah, product, mining. Like, mining services, services yeah. business. Yeah. Like, so what, then the second business, what industry yeah, so, is that? So the second one was um, doing – it was basically produced secure key cabinets, which is like a security product. Um, okay, uh, security product. Still B2B, I guess. Yeah, B2B. Uh, still manu- B2B. Manufacturing component. Manufacturing, industrial uh, products, IoT, all that yeah. stuff. The, yeah. the third one yeah. um, was uh, on-street parking meters. So, again, like the similarities – um, uh, um, there's usually an industrial product. It's, it's typically like all, always B2B. Um, yeah. Uh, there is some kind of software related to the hardware that's kind of in an IoT type fashion connecting it together. Like th- they've all got that kind of characteristic. Um, so there, there are definitely similarities and there's also similarities in terms of, um, scale and team dynamic and, um, growth path and that kind. So the, the, the kind of skills and experience are definitely transferable. Um, and, and that's part of the, part of the plan and kind of the comment I made earlier around, you know, the things that I look for now, I, I do my best to try and stay in my lane and, and work, work with people that I think I can actually help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess so, like, you know, the, I guess the, the, the previous owners of the business that you bought these businesses from, you know, they, they spent good part of most of their career starting the business, building it. Um, but they've, for some, whatever reason, hit a ceiling and whether that's an intentional ceiling because they're like, Hey, I'm listening. I'm happy with $5 million of free cash flow. Yeah. You come to my bank account. That's a good lifestyle for me. Or it's like, I've worked really hard, but I just can't yeah. get to that next level because of whatever reason. But somehow, you know, it sounds like you've got a skill set where you've been able to drop in, 
build it, scale yourself out, move on to the next one. In you know, in eighty twenty principle, like is it? What's your playbook to 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 drop in and do that? Obviously, every business will have slightly different dynamics in terms of team and problems. But like, yeah, what what is that? You know, five five bullet point plan that uh, they put into a tweet thread. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so you'll love my first one, um, which is make sure you get the numbers right. So uh, you'll you'll appreciate that. Um, so I think one of the things that's really important is just making sure you've got a good handle on um, on the numbers as they're coming through the business. So so often these businesses don't do month end accounts. Um, often they've got charts that were either generic or not even appropriate to the business that they're running. Um, they'll r- infrequently and irregularly reconcile that cash. Um, you know, like part of the time I spent at Macquarie Bank, I was in the internal audit division, so bank recs are like... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Peter. I know. Tell me about it. Condolences, yeah. Silver lining. Silver lining. Um, I, I definitely am a, a massive advocate for key control, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. so cash recs to me uh, are a big thing. Um, and And I think... So I think just generally, it's like if you, I mean, go, go back to the, um, the, the vintage car, right? So you jump in the seat and it doesn't even have a speedo or rev counter, right? You're like, mm-hmm. how fast is this thing even going? Right. Like, and, and the old owner didn't care because they could feel the wind in their hair and they could hear the engine. That's all they needed to know. Right. Whereas, whereas you need more feedback than yeah. that. So. So I think I think step one is definitely just make sure that you've got whether it's via kind of external VCFO or something like that. If if you don't have scale within the team to get the right people in the team, or making sure you get the right people in the business to do it, but definitely get to a point pretty quickly where on a monthly basis you know what's happening. Um, I think I think after that um, I would probably. And then they're not necessarily sequential, but I think it's really understanding org structure. I'm a, I'm a, a huge org structure geek. Like I just love thinking about how to get the players in the right position on the pitch to make the team as successful as possible and trying to think about, okay, what is it about this business that actually is going to make it grow and be successful and therefore, how do we design an org structure that's going to reflect that as best as possible? And so, um, and I think, and also, I guess the other reason I jumped to org structure relatively soon after that is that I, I think that org structure is typically one of those limiting factors for most of these businesses because they just haven't mm. thought about that well enough. So they've got a bunch of good players on the field, but they just haven't thought much about how they're going to work as a team and how they're going to work in a team in a way that people are comfortable to let people do their job. Um, and so everyone's kind of walking over the top of each other and all that sort of stuff. So, so I think org structures, org structure is really important. And then after that, I would probably move to a few little process things, like just to make sure that, um, that, that there's no kind of glaring problems or gaps in the way in which the processes are established. Um, and that kind of gets your baseline. Like in, that's your internal kind of, okay, have we got, do we know what's happening in the business? Are the people now in situations where they know what the business is trying to achieve and the role they're going to play to do that? And that also has a massive cultural impact. And then are we doing things in an efficient way? So that's like, okay, the machine's good. Um, 
the advantage of buying an existing business that's got positive cash flow and all that sort of stuff is that um, there should be enough kind of momentum in that flywheel that um, the money keeps coming through the door in that period while you're doing that process. So obviously, you're not forgetting about customers in that in that period of time. But yes. You're not necessarily yeah. out there trying to ramp up customer growth because one of the I remember there's a documentary on the guy that um, took over from Lego corporation i can't remember the years but late 90s to early thousands when lego itself was almost going to go under and and he described it as at the point when he took over lego had something like seventeen and a half thousand unique pieces that it was making because of all the collaborations that it had done and the first thing he did was scale that back to ten and a half thousand pieces and the comment that he made at the time was that most businesses dive indigestion not starvation and and I think that that's a, a really important point so you definitely don't want to go in and like go right revenue like because you start pumping a whole bunch of re- if you're too successful you'll die right um yes so fix the machine and then as I said before like you, you really then just want to work out how you can provide the best possible outcome for customers and really understand what it is that you're doing for customers whether it's product or service and then just slowly then start growing that piece and the thing about these businesses is they don't need to 10x in two years or they don't need some massive hockey stick i mean just a good steady growth over a five to eight year period and if you if your machine's built right you'll be making good money yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, I think people underestimate the power of compounding, yeah. you know, and growing 10% yeah. top line year on year, assuming you're maintaining your margins. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot, you know, compared to some of the high growth businesses yeah. that talk about doubling, but, you know, sustained over a 10 year horizon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it really, really adds up. And also, and also from a working capital perspective, you're more likely to be internally funded at that growth rate. Whereas if you've got huge yeah, growth absolutely. rate, you, you've got capital issues, right? So. Yeah, exactly right. Which is, um, yeah, I guess biggest challenge for kind of these industrial type businesses that you, you've had experience in. It's a lot of capex and a lot of working cap, yeah. uh, involved in these. Um, yeah. So I, what's the, what's the worst deal you've ever done or you've ever seen? So I haven't actually like, again, I want to make sure it doesn't sound like I'm lying to avoid a question. <laughs> I, I haven't seen any terrible deals per se, like, because I think that it, it, in the experience that I've had, but both in the experience that I've directly had and, and what I've witnessed, if a deal gets bad enough, it kind of doesn't get done usually. Sure. Like yeah. I haven't seen any situations where one or both of the parties has ended up com- completely nailed on the back end of a deal. Um, there yeah. are definitely parties on either or both sides that are annoyed by the time they get to the end of the deal because they didn't get exactly what they wanted, right? And and even if I've had experiences where people have clearly stated exactly what they wanted, ended up getting exactly what they wanted and still being dissatisfied with the outcome because through the process maybe they realised that they could have got more than what they thought they wanted or who knows, right? But but I haven't seen anything completely blow up on that front. Um, you know, I've had, um, you know, one of the businesses that we bought was – uh, not in our wheelhouse. Uh, we invested in a business that was in wholesale travel. Um, we co-invested with another investor from that market. Um, but the comment that I made before about, um, uh, industry macro, um, that really hit us pretty hard there. And so we were kind of, we were pushing shit uphill, um, in, in a hard macro environment there. Um, 
we, we managed to get an exit that, that didn't result in a loss, which is a good thing. Um, but, but I, I haven't seen any. I've only seen, and maybe it's maybe this is a factor of the kinds of things that I'm investing in, the kinds of things that I'm buying. Like I've only seen deals end up um, like flat, as opposed to bad. You know, so I've yeah, definitely seen things where it's like the idea in buying it was that it was going to do, you know, maybe ten percent growth or maybe whatever, and it ended up yeah. just like being a bit of a fizzer. Um, yeah, uh, as opposed to it actually causing real damage. Yeah, and do you think that so in those example where what was a fizzer or it's kind of flat and uh, you may you may not it, for the risk that you put yeah. in because I guess investing in this this market uh, this this asset class you need returns of like at least twenty yeah. percent right yeah. to to reflect that yeah. that liquidity and and, and, and the time the, nature the time of, you invest in it as well yeah time yeah. exactly all that sort of stuff so um have you I guess have you seen or had experience of businesses where you thought they ticked the boxes and they just haven't grown um, maybe not because of the operator or the CEO but maybe qualities of the business itself yeah so I think. I think sometimes what happens, um, well, the, the way, the way to describe that, I think is also just in, in journeys that we've had, you know, like even if you look at, um, at SRO technology as an example, like we've now owned that for, for 10 years. Um, like I said before around the, the journey of any business as it's growing, obviously, if you take the starting point and the ending point of where we are now, that's good growth. In that process, it wasn't the straight yeah. line, right? <laughs> and and so I think you know sometimes yes, yes, you'll exactly. you'll put your time and energy into things um, like, for example, expanding into a new market either regionally or vertically. And we've done that with SRO, and sometimes those things have failed. You know, we we have um, we have customers in the west in the Pilbara for iron ore, um, and we've had various um, situations where we've had teams in Perth and we've had offices in Perth and those things have come and gone because we're still, you know, we were experimenting with different models of how to expand into the Western market, which, I mean, Western Australia, as you know, is is a very different place to the East Coast, right? And so so coming from the East into the West um, is is challenging um, for an external player. You know, the, the key cabinets business um, that we owned for a couple of years, the previous owners had tried to take it to the US a few times and had failed in various models, you know, direct employees, distributors, various other things. And even during the period of our ownership, we tried a few different things about how to get um, exposure into the US because it's a massive market and we had a few kind of lighthouse customers over there that still couldn't break it. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily a business acquisition that didn't work, but it was definitely a business initiative that didn't. Um, sure. And And I think that that probably a common factor across a lot of those things is that sometimes when you look at an opportunity or something from the outside in, you've got this, I don't know which version of bias it is. It's probably not a confirmation bias or it's a whatever bias, but, but you, you, for example, with the US, you're like, well, they speak English. So shortly. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Little do you know how different it is to do business in the US than it is to do business in Australia, right? Like, yeah, well, they're taller flushes the other way. Right? Like, like, everything's different, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. it's it's completely <laughs> it, it's not it's not the same. Like you know, naively we thought we've got a product, we've got great customers here. 
you know, one, one of the customers for our product here in Australia is the Australian Defence Force, right, which is highly renowned amongst Defence Forces globally. So we thought, yeah. surely, if we say this is certified by the Australian Defence Force and we went to the US, like, they would respect that certification. But they probably did. But then there's this whole other thing that you need to navigate to actually get into that marketplace in the US. And so, yeah, and and but also then you go to like an, another thing that happens quite often, particularly, I mean, US is a good example, right? People say, oh, let's expand to the US. Like now I've learned that's just a stupid thing to say. To say. Like you never say I'm going to expand to the US. Like that's like that's ridiculous. You say I'm going to expand to Kansas City or you say I'm going to expand yeah. to like <laughs> – you know, San Diego, or you don't even say I'm going to expand to the, to LA. Like that's even too big a market. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so, and, and if you go to each of those places, like go to New York, go to, um, Cleveland, go to, um, you know, Denver, go to wherever, each of those different markets is a, is a completely different dynamic that you've got to navigate. Right. So, so I think, um, you know, if I think about things that have, that, that go wrong and can go wrong, um, I think it's it's probably making too many assumptions around similarities that appear to exist that actually completely don't. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so yeah, I mean, personally, like you, you know, you've got interest in multiple like private liquid S- SMBs. Like in terms of your personal net worth and asset allocation, like how do you do? You, do you think about managing that risk, or you're like, no, no, this is my domain of exp- expertise. I'm going to go all in. Like you know, invest in what you know. Do you, how, how do you think about that? Uh, I probably don't think about it enough. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, I, I have some listed stocks, I guess, but it's not material. Did you choose those stocks? So are you like yeah. the next fund? Or yeah, like, but or? not, not, it's not really a big, it's probably the only other material asset that I've got. I, I don't, I think, I mean, and I mean, I could, I could, um, lie a little bit here and say that I'm kind of down the Warren Buffett method of thinking, but it's not really even to do with that. But I guess I kind of feel like um, I'm an active investor. Um, I, I like getting involved with things and I feel comfortable putting my money behind things that I'm getting involved with. And so yeah. so in terms of asset allocation, um, I'm comfortable um, allocating what appears to be all in one bucket, but it's lots of little cups within that bucket, right? So yeah, yeah. and each of those cups has its own destiny. So um, I, I do think that the other area that um, I have invested in um, and would invest in again in the future would be property, um, and property from an active perspective, because you know whether that's development or or that kind of thing, because yeah. it's an area that I've worked with professionally um, and it's an area that I know quite well. But yeah, at the moment I'm I'm pretty heavy on private business. And in terms of liquidity, that's always something you need to manage when you're in this space because you need to make sure that you've got those buffers and it's something you're constantly thinking about. And, and even as a search investor, you know, you never know when the next searcher is going to raise search capital and when you might need to have some dry powder for that. But equally, like like I said, I've got I've got I think it's eight. I keep getting the number wrong, eight or ten um searches that I'm backing at the moment. I've got well, I've got a, some idea when a few of them will be completing acquisitions, but I've got no idea when others might be. And so managing my allocation, even from a timing perspective, in terms of liquidity between those opportunities is really interesting as well. Because if each of those searches did a 
big enough deal, I wouldn't be able to participate. You know, like there is a decision-making process there that I need to work through and make sure that I'm managing my capital accordingly. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. And and like these these private businesses, are they they paying dividends or are they all – are you just going for capital growth and then getting a a liquid event as a a sale or something? Bit bit of both. Bit of both. So so some of them them pay dividends um, and – but also some of them – none of them pay dividends on a schedule. Right, so yeah, so gotcha. it's always a a proactive board decision as to whether or not a capital allocation type framework. Yep. Yeah, okay, there's some excess cash. Sense. Is there an investment yeah. coming up, or do we distribute? Like, it, it's never like every six months there's something coming out. It's always like a decision that we're making from time to time. Yeah, cool, awesome. Um, yeah, so I guess ra- towards wrapping up to this conversation, I think there's probably a lot of um people interested in this world of search investing. Um, you know, particularly folks of, of my generation, my age, who are probably worked in uh, working professional services or they've got a, a full-time career and they're like, I've always wanted to be a business owner, but maybe don't want to take the risk of building something from from nothing because I don't have an idea or maybe the, the idea of buying a business is intimidating mm. or maybe they haven't cons- considered this path. What advice would you give to, to people considering um, going down this route of entrepreneurship? I think one of the things that, that characterizes um, the search fund sector, if we can call it that, or the search fund community yep. globally, not even just in Australia, but but frankly globally, even to my surprise, is how open and collaborative it is. I mean, it's 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 the the most open and friendly bunch of of business related people that I've ever met, um, and and massively sharing and transparent. So. So with that in mind, the the first piece of advice, I, I mean, I even caught up for coffee with someone this morning who was thinking about it, and like obviously, I tell them everything that that I know to answer their questions. But pretty much the action item coming out of most of those coffees that I have with those kind of people is here's five people I'll introduce you to. Go and spend half an hour with each of those people, and and across the spectrum, here's an investor, here's a searcher, here's an operator, here's a you know here's an advisor. Like go and speak to all these people learn what you can from them and get another introduction from each of them and just continue to work your way through. There are, I mean, there are obviously lots of materials to read, you know, Stanford, Harvard, Chicago Booth, IESE, NCA, all the big global universities have heaps of material on search because it's a big post-MBA career path now. If you look at any of those university websites and search ETA or search, you'll find if you if you're more of a reader than a talker, <laughs> uh, there's plenty of reading to do. Stanford issues uh, a study every two years that provides all the details, so there's lots of analysis and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd say there's plenty to read online about it, um, but equally, there's a whole community of people, and even more so today than two years ago, just a huge community of people in Australia on the investor, searcher, and advisor sides that are more than happy to chat to new people that are thinking about coming to the market. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, Pete. Thank you for your time. Uh, where can people find you if they're interested to learn about yourself and, and search generally? Pro- probably the easiest is LinkedIn because um, it's pretty easy to find me on there and um, you can send me a message or like click some links and, you know, find out from there. But that, that's probably the easiest. I'm, I'm on there relatively frequently um, and um, and that's probably easiest to get through to me and, and happy to chat. Yeah, happy to help people if, if there's something that I can do to help. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, Pete. No worries, Appreciate mate. It. Thank you very much for having me. I really like it. And and, and congratulations on getting the podcast going. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's super valuable to have people like you um, getting people on to, to ask some good questions and bring things to life. 
So there you go, plenty of great advice from Pete Seligman to get you started in the search investment game, if you please. Next time, we'll be back with our investment note series, where I'll unpack the numbers behind the recent investment opportunity that came across our desk. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Stark Naked Numbers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the secrets of uncovering your financials, unlocking your cash, and unleashing your profits, visit StarkNakedNumbers.com. I'm Jason Andrew, and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers podcast. See you next time.